think there has to be not just a when, when Nate says watch the film. I think there has to be a conservative. There will be a, a, a change in something. We feel like we can be better, but we're gonna watch the film. I just get out and we'll watch film. Uh, obviously, I think experience is uh, the best teacher, the best tool. But watching film is studying. So even when we're not at the gym, when games come on and I'm at home at night, this is my way of Tim Tan, how's it going? Good, welcome to um, watching film. I it's been so long since we recorded that I don't remember. Actually, was I the host of the podcast, or were you the host of the podcast? Oh, did we decide on one of us being the host? I don't think we did. Oh, so we didn't have a host. So. I don't think so. You mean like <laughs> a, like a like an artificially <laughs> imposed structure where one of us is hosting and one of us is like. Do you think of this kind of like the Mike Breen versus um uh what's the what's the grumpy guy's name? Gundy? Jeff McGundy. Wait, what, what is No, I don't even know the, the announcers. Oh, um, the announcers. Um Jeff Van Gundy. Jeff Van Gundy, yes. You're not, thinking not... Mick Gundy because you went to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have I'll have the the, the Gundy uh, combo, please. Um, yes, um, I just want to. I hope I'm not. Just, I I don't think either of us is Jeff Van Gundy. Right, but do you do you do you understand what I'm trying to get yeah. in that comparison? Which is like one person is like Mike Breen's job is to kind of hold to to like hold the space of dialogue, and then mm-hmm. Jeff Van Gundy and uh, Mark Brown are more the kind of like interjectors and they're all kind of like equal billing, but it helps their conversational flow to designate one person as like, I'm just going to like basically close caption the performance. And then, so they're not like falling over each other. I I think I'd prefer for us to be like the TNT halftime show panel. Like I, I think, you know, we're more, we have more of like a chalk and shack and okay. Um, yeah, like a, a lighter dynamic. Okay. And is it clear which of us is Chuck and which of us is Shaq? Um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, we all are. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. We're both of us are all four blended into yeah. one. Um, yeah, this, this feels, this feels very nice to get back to this. Um, it's been a really, really long time since we've podcasted. Um, but the reason why we we've just had to... nothing to say for all these years. That's true. The <laughs> last time we ended, we said the next time one of us has a new goddamn thought, <laughs> we'll fire up the old machine. And as it happened, it took about 16 months, but here we are. <laughs> um, but all kidding aside, we uh, decided to do this because we uh, decided we we were both in a place where at some point we realized that uh, we were each going to have to rewatch AI artificial intelligence mm-hmm. directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Should we maybe start by saying why we we each felt that we had to watch this movie? And I'm framing it very as like it was forced upon us, but we we're also both like <laughs> kind of excited to revisit this movie, which we've known from before. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So this movie came out in 2001. Um, I remember watching it with my mom in theaters and it being like such a, a powerful moving experience for both of us. Um, in fact, I would say, so I've, I've actually always really liked this movie a lot. Um, and in a way, I've liked it so much that I can't really bear to watch it. And so I've got to really... exactly what you mean. <laughs> Just the... I'm glad that that makes sense to you. Like, it's actually, there's something actually um, so vivid about this movie that I actually find it really difficult to watch over. Um, because, you know, then it's like, well, why aren't all the other <laughs> movies as, like interesting as this or like why aren't I being provoked in in the same way um so it's been several years since I've seen it and the image of um you know like computers and machines and that sort of like the fantasies around what computers can give us emotionally um it's actually really interesting to see where that vision was in 2001 versus to think about where we are now yeah, that was um, one of the things that I think I kind of realized after I started rewatching the movie, which was like, okay, if we're asking the question, like, what, why, why rewatch the movie AI in 2023? Like, what is the kind of, um, like, the friction of, like, revisiting that movie right now? Mm-hmm. And one, one answer could be, like AI is very much in the news in 2023. And so one thing that we could think about is like, what did this movie from 2001 get right or wrong about mm-hmm. what what AI meant for people? Like what what is what is kind of like the anxiety or the fear um, or like desire ascribed to AI and like how different does that look today from like 22 years ago? Yeah, um, that sounds great to me as sort of a starting off point. Should we also just do like a quick recap of the the story such as it exists? Like the narrative um, of this movie really follows the Pinocchio story. Right. I think very like literally and, mm. and sort of uh, wants to kind of draw out kind of how those parallels map onto, but also... Um, don't work very well for the sort of like you know AI that's made out of like bolts and um yeah bolts and software instead of wood um like in the Pinocchio tale and so I think that um the movie the real protagonist of our movie is this boy played by Haley Joel Osment named David who is amazing right yeah and who is a a perfectly cast like this movie really has this whole other understory about child actors as robots Mm, which i think is actually which i think Haley joel osmond was the perfect example of in 2001 so he plays the um basically this prototype for a robot child 
who is designed um, to have this unique ability to emotionally bond with one human being and only one human being, mm -hmm. the person who imprints does like this imprinting mechanism on him. So he enters the life of Monica and her husband, Henry, who works for the, um, I guess the corporation that creates the, the robot um, along with other mecha and um, Monica's still grieving the loss of her son who has been like cryogenically frozen, yes. like, like Walt Disney <laughs> for five years. And, you know, like, so Wait, cryogenically froze Walt Disney. Yeah. His head. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> can you, can you visit it like Mao? Oh, I wish. Like, I is think there a I... glass case in, in Epcot where you like go in and you can like pay homage to the head? Yeah. <laughs> you have to you have to buy a fast pass to get access to that. You can't yeah. just get it on a regular. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's yeah, that's that's good. And maybe as as we're kind of recapping the plot to AI, we can thread in how it's like similar or different from the plot of the short story that sure. the movie was kind of like initially based on because there are already a couple of differences right um I mean I'll say also like you know one difference with the Pinocchio tale and I haven't read the original Pinocchio story have you I have actually it's oh, okay. a, it's a it's a great short novel it's been okay. years since I've read yeah. it so the <laughs> details are fuzzy for me but the other reason that it's like come into my awareness recently is there was recently a new video game that came out made by a South Korean um, production company called Lies of P. And it it's like a, like an action fighty game based on the Pinocchio story where you play as Pinocchio. Oh, and apparently there are like a lot of elements. It's like quite faithful to the story or like it draws a lot from it. Um, lives you said that's lives of p sorry, lies of p lies, lies of, of p. p yeah and a lot of the discourse around it was just like how how kind of carefully they had studied the novel and how mm. much they had like adapted but anyway so i was i was just thinking of that as like another kind of place where that story has arrived in pop culture recently yeah I mean, one um, one thing that's been on my list to see, but I haven't seen yet, is um, Guillermo del Toro's adaptation oh. of Pinocchio that he did really recently, just a couple of years okay. ago oh, on, okay. for Netflix, right. which I've actually heard really good things about, especially oh. in relation to how um, how it really thinks through the sort the original source material. Yeah, but I haven't seen oh, that yet. Okay, maybe we should watch that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, one one thing that is kind of immediately different is that the the original Pinocchio story is a father-son creation story mm -hmm. yeah and in AI the father is sort of incidental um and it really becomes like a mother-son story mm -hmm. um and you know I, I and we can talk more about what that change changes yeah in, in the way that the like the child is kind of symbolized yeah, it's interesting how it's always, um, it's only one parent <laughs> that mm -hmm. is sort of like that the bond exists through. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I mean, that's like an explicit, that's explicitly stated in this movie is the, you know, Henry tells his wife, um, 
once you, you you can only do the imprinting once you're completely sure because once he's been imprinted for our own safety he can only be imprinted onto one person and so there's no way for him to be resold basically if you change your mind like he would just need to be sent back to the factory to be destroyed yeah this is maybe slightly jumping ahead because I realize we're still in the space of the plot summary but I think we've done this before so um you know we'll we'll get we'll like get back to the plot summary I'm sure but you know one of the things I was gonna ask you about at some point today was um wh what you thought of the idea that um without kind of romanticizing or essentializing women as mothers mm -hmm. this movie would have no reason to exist yeah <laughs> and I I was thinking of that in what you just said because when the couple are having that conversation about whether or not to imprint no one is ever to the dad like what do you think <laughs> you know he's like right. this is your decision right. and it's not even really addressed you know that this is very much like a need that's framed as like her need and he's like fine either way that's that's one of the things that really stood out to me watching this again in 2023 is yeah, how okay. there's such a rigidly heterosexual vision of both the future and of the family because the um the sex robots that we meet later on like also just the idea of like um the, this main sex robot um gigolo joe who is played by jude law like the idea that he exists to service women um, when that seems like entirely unrealistic that a robot would only service women if, mm -hmm. you know, that women would be the main clientele mm -hmm. um, for, right. you know, intimacy robots. We we know today that they're not and they haven't been for a long time. Yeah, there's a there's there's an interesting way in which erotophobia and technophobia are kind of isomorphic in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that feels very Spielberg to me, mm. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I think the way that they're related is that they're both like both technology and sex are kind of assaults on like a kind of purity, like an innocence, which ends up being kind of projected onto childhood. Right. So sex kind of yeah. denatures the innocence of childhood technology denatures the kind of like naturalism of existence and like act act two is such a swerve from act one right because mm -hmm. act one is just entirely in the space of childhood and act two jumps directly to jude law well let's like go through um so back from where we left off with the plot summary where would you say the end of act one comes like because i agree with you that actually this movie feels very split into parts but um, I also just am curious to say where you think that happens and how the plot develops up to that point. Yeah, so actually, um, act one, so, you know, we were talking a little bit about how we we both had such, like, really powerful experiences with this movie when we were younger. And I remember thinking for a long time, and it's not so much that I like don't believe this anymore, but this was just such a strong conviction of mine for so long. The act one of this movie is just like a perfect act. Mm -hmm. um, it just it it just felt so kind of self-contained and 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 just like beautifully balanced. So act mm -hmm. one 
kind of starts with the kind of prologue material where you're introduced to the idea of like child robots who are now advanced enough to kind of mimic or um, experience love and it's and in a way that kind of blurs the line between artificiality and reality that they're mm-hmm. advanced enough to do that and then essentially the rest of the first act is in the home um, in Monica's home mm-hmm. and um, and leads up to the point where um, the child David needs to be returned to the factory um, because it turns out that um like like he can't just continue to to be a, a child in the house and 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 like the and we can get into the plot reasons for that involving the like the competition with the mm-hmm. biological the orgo son yeah, who the returns orgo son. and <laughs> the orgo son um um who and then who feels jealous of of david the robot um and so act one ends with Monica driving David ostensibly back to the factory to be destroyed. Cause that's yeah. made very clear. Like either we keep him or he's destroyed, but then yeah. Monica can't bring herself to bring David back. And so mm-hmm. she kind of stops her very cool futuristic looking car yes. in the middle <laughs> of the forest drive and like gets him like, like kind of shoves him away and she t- kind of tells him where to go. And, and she says, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you about the world. And I think yeah. that's the last line we hear before fade to black. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next thing you hear is Gigolo Joe's voice sort of romancing a woman in like a motel. And we're mm-hmm. in, we're not in Rouge. Are we in Rouge City at that no, point? No, that's where they go. That's where, okay, um, okay, that's right. where Joe takes, right. takes David. Yeah. With, with with a young entourage cast. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then so to, to me, that's end of act one and then beginning of act two. Now we're suddenly in the adult world, the, the world of sex and depravity and like yeah. the Vegas-y kind of environment, which is so contrasted to the the home and the maternal space of childhood innocence. Um, is, is that also how you kind of track it up to then or do you do it differently? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think um, one other sort of aspect of the setting of this film that it was really interesting to see, um, because I'd forgotten about this, was that this is all happening, we're told, like, at a time when humanity has been really humbled. Like, we get this sense that, like, something terrible has happened with, like, the climate um, like right. Manhattan is underwater. That's right. actually a, a big part of the the story. Um, and so that's kind of like an interesting starting spot also is this idea that like humanity has actually been like really cowed by some big event. Um, and that is sort of like the reason why that's part of the reason why the robot children mm-hmm. exist also is we yeah. have a sense that like, um, you know, that there's a limit to resources. And so like families cannot be the size that they were before. And we don't have a sense exactly of if that's like also infertility issues or mm-hmm. if it's, um, you know, like government restrictions on family size or like overpopulation. But it's a really interesting kind of uh, theme because that exists in um, another robot movie that we've watched together, Coconata's After Yang, also mm-hmm. takes place in the aftermath of like some 
worldwide sort of like big um, conflict that, you know, has made humanity smaller. Mm-hmm. Even though there's a lot of technical advancement, there's the sense that like, this is actually a really fragile moment for humanity. Do you feel like this movie is interested in the idea of global climate disaster? Or do you feel more that it's kind of a convenience to stage the the kind of like domestic story that it's ultimately interested in? Or do you feel like the story as it plays out is in some way like meaningfully related to the way in which the kind of historical framing of the movie starts? That's a good question. Um, I mean, it, you know, we're introduced to it as just sort of like a for granted circumstance of the world. Um, so it feels just like it was an inevitable sort of like starting point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? It, I feel like I forget the global warming stuff really fast. Yeah. Um, and and maybe that's also because like I'm thinking of this as a Spielberg movie mm-hmm. and his idea of childhood is so ahistorical and mm-hmm. eternal, you know, like childhood is this kind of like magical sphere that kind of comes up so often in his movies mm-hmm. that it feels to me like I I don't like it, it could have been any other reason why this family needed to have like a robot baby, you know, and I, I don't I don't feel that the the like the framing as like kind of climate disaster changes that. That being said, the I find the opening shot incredibly striking. Um, the opening the, shot, hmm. the opening sound, even before that, is like yeah. this really strong sound of ocean waves. Yeah. And the and so the first shot, which is just like waves of water without any horizon or any shoreline, right? Yeah. Like the water completely fills. Like that to me is actually one place where not through plot or argument, but just through like the force of that image, I do feel something of that sort of historical frame. Um, And also then that ties into, I think somewhere around where the last act starts, you get the shot of ice Mm -hmm. and that, right. And that becomes like a kind of formal marker that recalls the initial image. And so Mm -hmm. something about that movement from the water shot to then the ice shot, does feel very significant in like the framing of this very long movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Should we get back to where we were in the plot uh, recap? Sure. So after, um, I guess like the only other thing that I would add is that there is a sidekick super toy um, oh, yes. named Teddy, yes. who is a smart teddy bear yes. um, that, you know, used to belong to Martin, the Orgo child, Monica's yeah. Orgo son, yeah. but is passed down to um, David as, you know, we have the sense that like Martin, Martin is bored and has outgrown the, the teddy bear. Yeah. So I'm curious what you made of the teddy bear and why the teddy bears in this movie. Mm-hmm. good question um the teddy bear is really wise actually and I think that that's actually one of the big questions that arise like the teddy bear is one of our pathways into this big question that I think is over the entire movie as a whole which is are machines able to like 
only think concretely or are they also able to think abstractly? Um, and I, right. I think it's like no accident that that's also um, something that we're never sure of with children as adults. It's like very difficult to tell because children seem to toggle a lot between very concrete literal thinking mm -hmm. and having, um, you know, like the capacity for abstract thought. So like just as one example of this, um, can I tell you a story about a mutual friend of ours? Yes, please. I won't say his name, but- um, But you know who you are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have this mutual friend of ours who uh, told me this story about how when he was a little boy around like four or five, um, his family took him on, you know, camping trips. And um, this was like one of the earliest ones that he'd been on. So he like asked his aunt in the middle of like the camping trip, um, where do I, I need to pee? Where do I go to the bathroom here? And his aunt pointed over to, you know, like some shrubs um, that were hidden by trees and said like, over there, go to the bathroom over there. And so um, he walked over there, um, right like behind the tree and he peed his pants <laughs> because he hadn't literally been told like right. pull down your pants right. and so there's something there's something isn't, isn't that so sweet and innocent yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that there's something about that um capacity that children have to accept words and stories mm -hmm. and instructions so literally yeah. um that it's actually it actually becomes a problem for how to gauge their capacity for abstract thought. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that is true of David, but um, I don't know, it like especially seems true of Teddy, who mm -hmm. we would think is this like older form of technology that shouldn't be as advanced. And yet that actually um, seems as if he's evolved this sense of greater um, thinking or like situational awareness. Yeah, that that's so interesting. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, that like there's something about babies or children that sort of we we kind of like relate to them very much like programs because mm -hmm. we, we there's a kind of like uh like an imagined simplicity or literalness to like the inputs and the outputs. Like, you know, mm -hmm. if you like <laughs> tell a child this they'll like respond in this way like there's there's a almost a kind of like man, manipulative way in which we interact with very the very young not in the sense of deception but in the sense that there's a kind of confidence that we can sort of guide or direct or shape behavior in a way that like we're not supposed to do with adults maybe yeah and one of the problems um that ends up being like the big motivation for David is that he takes the Pinocchio story completely literally. Right. Like he, he really believes that there, it's not just like a metaphor. There really is this blue fairy that if he can just find the blue fairy, he can learn how to be real yeah. and that, you know, that will be the, the solution. And it is interesting that like the, so the kind of core trio that ends up threading through most of the middle of the movie is David, Teddy, and Gigolo Joe. Mm -hmm. And so there are three meccas of kind of like three different generations, mm -hmm. right? Where Teddy is sort of like maybe just a step ahead of like Tickle Me Elmo, 
Yeah. Um, maybe a couple steps ahead of Tickle Me Elmo. And then and then the Jude Law character. And then gave it a sort of like the realist. And mm-hmm. it is kind of striking that of all of them, like Teddy and Jude Law never want to be more than they are. They've kind of mm-hmm. like fully embraced yeah. who they are. And David is the only one who like can experience longing. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of a little bit confusing that we are continually told that David is the first of his kind, as in the mm-hmm. only robot that can love mm-hmm. um, a human, because actually what we end up seeing in Teddy and G- Gigolo Joe, you know, it's not these oh, like effusive yeah. expressions of love, but they yeah. actually care about David so much more than his human right. family ever right. did. Like they actually give support and help to him unconditionally in a way that um you know is surprising like to see like oh there actually ends up being this strange like found family that forms its own little nucleus that um doesn't operate on the same logic as the human family and yet where something like love or community still exists absent the human that's such a good point. Um, yeah, I really love that. And I, I hadn't thought of that as being a kind of like alternative to the kind of nuclear triad that we have in the first act of the movie. Do you want to talk about maybe places where the movie and the story diverge? Because Sure. It's, so it's we're talking once... about the short story that was written by Brian Aldiss, called Super Toys Last All Summer Long, which is supposedly the story that Stanley Kubrick really loved and um, wanted to turn into a movie for, you know, a long time and um, did not live to see the completion of AI, but that Spielberg, you know, picked up on this desire that was actually originally Kubrick's. Yeah, and and there's the moment... Um where at some point Kubrick hands the movie off to Spielberg because he says like I think this is more your vibe than my Mm -hmm. vibe which totally makes sense and but also like this is in some ways I feel like the most like Kubrickian Spielberg movie yeah I agree yeah so in in the in the short story you know one of the things that's strikes me is that it's it's very much about it's very much from the David character's perspective Mm -hmm. um the mom so so in the story the there is no child in kind of there's no already existing orgo child who's in cryogenic stasis Um, right it's a childless couple it's a childless couple and they're they've been applying and waiting for governmental permission to have their own orgo child so mm-hmm. in the interim um they've adopted this like robot child and the robot child becomes really fascinated with um whether things that are real versus not real and so there's scenes where the child plays with a flower and mm-hmm. and there's and there's this kind of like wondering about like you know am i real the way the flower is real etc mm-hmm. and then at, and then the the mom character it the of the parent couple the short story also feels mostly focused on the mom but she seems to like not really know what to do with the robot child she Mm -hmm. seems like there's a kind of gap there 
which mm-hmm. is also the way that Monica initially interacts with David in the movie. But at the end of the story, which is quite short, I thought it was going to be a lot longer because I wasn't sure how much of the story made it into the movie. Um, by the end, the dad comes home and he's like, good news, honey, we can have our own baby. And then she's like, yay. And then like, that's it. And then and then the, the robot child is just left with its own mu- existential musings about the real and the fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually an open ending of what exactly will happen to him. Like we have a sense that like maybe um maybe they'll get rid of him, maybe they'll take him back to the factory, maybe they think that you know, he can like adapt to like being the baby's robot instead. Yeah. Um but the story ends with I'll just read out like the last part of the story as the two adults disappeared from the room, boy and bear So Teddy is still a part of the story. Boy and bear sat down beneath the standard roses. Teddy, I suppose mommy and daddy are real, aren't they? Teddy said, you ask such silly questions, David. Nobody knows what real really means. Let's go indoors. Um, And then he, you know, David picks like one of the fake roses in the garden and decides to bring it inside um, with him. Um. I find this language so interesting because it's in other stories too, where the the fascination is not actually on becoming human. Like the question actually is not what is human, who is human, but the question is what is real? Um, who is real? How do you become real? Um, one of my favorite books when I was a child was The Velveteen Rabbit and the language about what is real is also a, a big part of that story. Are you familiar with the Velveteen Rabbit, Dan? I'm not. I never read it. So in the Velveteen Rabbit, um, Marjorie Williams um, has this, you know, like picture book about um, a stuffed rabbit who dreams of being like real, but who is actually like outlived, you know, outgrown the way that toys are outgrown um, by its child owner um and it has this conversation with another toy in the nursery um which is like a rocking horse like it's called the skin horse and um this is a a passage that I've I've often like thought to myself oh this is like one of those passages about love that I could imagine like having recited at my wedding (laughs) you know because it's it's like just a very wise um So this quote goes, real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? The rabbit asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. 
Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a lovely yeah. book. I mean, I I love that the the emphasis there on um not being human or animate or alive, yeah. but actually that real is the category that you know does not depend actually on human sentience or human thought, which yeah. I think is what we normally think of as like the qualifier for artificial intelligence, but it's actually related to human love and this ability to um yeah, to acquire okay. that. That love is like the thing that makes you real. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me comparing that to our AI examples again is that neither of the Davids and the AIs really get to have that. Mm -hmm. So both the in the story, I think I think what what I'm left with. Mo like most strongly from the story is the sense that AI will have just been a kind of like temporary blip in these humans' lives. You know, yeah, like, it's a placeholder. Yeah, and in the end, they're like, "Oh, we can just have our orgo child," and like it, it kind of just feels like the the robot, and you know, will will be like shipped off the next day, mm -hmm. and and yet, like the bulk of the story is in the kind of mind of the the kind of existential wondering of the robot child of like what mm -hmm. is real am I real mm -hmm. and I think part of the effect that I'm left with at the end of that story is both how kind of um just how like plangent that wondering is and also how completely unacknowledged it will be because yeah. the human parents have already moved on and so this is like a little sphere of wondering about realness that will mm -hmm. actually never be heard by anybody else in this story. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder, and maybe this will get us now to like the last act of the movie. I wonder if you feel that David in the movie does become real by the end, or at least finds an answer to the question that he's been asking the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And if so, what is it that grants him that reality? Because as we know from the movie, the mom that he's attached to has died long mm -hmm. before we get to the end. And in fact, he has not seen her since act one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that uh, the movie really um, leads me to think that he was always real before the ending. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because that he like had this capacity to love that is the same as what a human child has like it's actually this like love that comes without reason really um and that actually is becomes a big detriment to his own well-being yeah um but that it's like this form of both social and emotional entrainment that he undergoes that has the power to actually ontologically change what he is mm -hmm. So he starts as like this robot that we we end up learning later on into the movie as he gets closer to like the truth um, of, you know, how he was made and the circumstances around like the corporation that created him and their sort of like commercial interests in him. 
um, is that he's actually like mass produced. Like there's, he walks into this horrific like warehouse full of Davids. And then we also see that there's like this other one who's this other robot toy whose name is Darlene. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is also like they're gender segregated, mm-hmm. like robots that are available, um, but only in these like two flavors, David or Darlene. Mm-hmm. Um, but that actually, we have the sense that like he has something that it seems like the other ones don't have because mm-hmm. of his entertainment. I mean, I think that it is mm-hmm. sort of like a cheesy reading of the film, but mm-hmm. what is your feeling? You know, this hasn't hadn't really kind of connected for me before this very moment, but I, you know, I'm realizing now, I think actually one of the things that I find really beautiful about the movie is that the movie starts with this sense of David feeling I'm special mm-hmm. and in part I'm special because mommy's special and so mm-hmm. mommy's specialness makes me special. Mm-hmm. And then there's a moment and then that's act one. And then in act two, he realizes, oh, I'm not actually that special. Yeah. You know, like nobody is like actually that original or that unique. I am like a copy amongst all of these copies. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense, the feeling of like, you are absolutely unique that you're like told as a child was turned out to be like false. Yeah. But then at the end, you know, so he, so because because of this kind of like quest to find his mom and to find the blue fairy um from the Pinocchio story who he thinks will make him a real boy and therefore his mom will like love him um he ends up at the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. and then the oceans freeze and basically and like all of humanity dies and like all of the robots die too but yeah. David is preserved because he's encased in ice. He's cryogenically and, frozen, just like yes, Martin and just like yes. Walt Disney. Yeah, <laughs> good company. Um, yeah, and also like his position at the bottom of the ocean is like foreshadowed by him sitting at the bottom of the family pool in yeah. Act One when he's like thrown in there. Um, but anyway, and then like eventually, like 2000 years later, aliens come to Earth and uncover David. And there's... Are they yeah. aliens or they're they're like robots that we have a sense were like made by other robots or something. Oh. Like I, I think they're a form of artificial intelligence okay. because they, they really like Revere David as like, oh, he is like one of the original ones of us. Yeah. So I think I I feel like it could be either. I think the the key thing is that some kind of historical connection to that past has been lost. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons they're so excited to find David is that he's kind of like their last remaining link to mm-hmm. the humans of, of whom, like, all trace has kind of disappeared by them. Mm-hmm. And then they say to him, you know, David, you're really important to us because you're unique. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there's a kind of like full circle moment that happens where he is once again unique but not for the reasons that he thought he was when he was a kid. Yeah. You know, know, like, um, and the movie ends with, you know, the aliens kind of granting him this last wish, which is to spend one final day with mommy. Um, And he's told that sort of, it can only be one day because actually we can't keep her simulation alive, I guess, for more than one day. Um, And I think that, that's actually crucial to 
this film's understanding of love, I think, is like, it reminds me of that. Um, there's this little quote that goes like, how terrible it is to love what can perish. But that is, in fact, like our only human experience of love mm -hmm. is that, you know, like the thing that you love always is fragile and always like, um, you know, has like a finite life. It's never going to live forever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then that is like actually part of what is really beautiful about love is that you choose to love anyway, knowing that the thing that you love isn't going to last forever. So the one perfect day at the end of the movie is the reason that I wanted to watch AI again. Um, because I was thinking about the the codas that come in like popular like just popular narrative movies generally. Mm. So I'm thinking of like the the last five to ten minutes of a romantic comedy after mm -hmm. they get together or like at or like or even I don't know like an episode of like CSI or whatever like after the criminal is apprehended or whatever mm -hmm. and then there's just the little denouement that happens after mm -hmm. and I became really interested in the idea of like what what is the atmosphere of the world imagined to be once genre and plot are over yeah. right like if up until then everything was driven by plot and by genre demand. Once all of those things fall away, what is the way in which like popular narrative representation or whatever imagines the space after genre? And the and the day at the end of AI was one of the things that I was like really curious about like re-watching because it's like a perfect day without mm -hmm drama without tension supposedly mm -hmm. um yeah and I think now hearing you talk about it I'm thinking how rare it is to have a day like that where you know it, it's both an ordinary day mm -hmm. and yet it's unordinary because you know it's the last one you're gonna get Mm -hmm. and generally we don't get to experience those things at the same time yeah I mean you know one thing I'm thinking of is like if like this is a somewhat contrived situation but like if you're like gonna break up with somebody who you've been together with for a long time and one of you is gonna like leave the like tr like move out of the country and you mm -hmm. decided to have like one last day together mm -hmm. like that's the only kind of real world situation or mm -hmm. or I don't know like if someone is like gonna go off life support or something and you know mm -hmm. this is like the last day um but there there's something like so haunting and also something so that is such an object of fantasy to be able to live just a regular day Mm -hmm. And to be fully attentive in that day in a way that normally the ordinary doesn't produce in you because it's ordinary. It's like every yeah. other day. And and there's that moment where um, Monica, like the revived Monica, asked David, like, what day is it? Because she's mm -hmm. kind of like confused. And then you can see David kind of like think about it. He's not sure how to answer. And then something clicks. And then he goes, it is today. <laughs> When you think about the the structure of the movie as a whole and then ending with that sequence, 
do you get some sense of because by by this point we're so far from the short story and the yeah. concerns of the short story you know um there is like I think there's some 2020 kinds of formal resonances here where throughout in the movie you're kind of like going through linear time and then Mm -hmm. you have this like sort of around the two-thirds mark this like tremendous acceleration that's like visually incoherent and then you return to some kind of like image of like domesticity or like the child at Mm -hmm. the end um a kind of like a drastic scaling back but I'm I'm curious, but those those movies also like feel so different in terms of like what they're going for. Um I'm curious what what you're left with at the end of this movie or how you make sense of that progression. Yeah. Um it's a great question. And I um I think it's really it's really interesting to me how much the ending of this movie has been criticized um since its release yeah for the most part I mean I think that you know Spielberg even spoke out about how um because a lot of critics felt like oh it's so sentimental Mm -hmm. um this movie would be so much better if it ended at the bottom of the ocean Mm -hmm. um and Spielberg you know like has actually said no but that was Kubrick's idea actually Mm -hmm. it was always Kubrick's idea for it to end with um him having this like final day so there's this critic, Anna Lee Newitz, um, who has written about this film a little bit in her book, Pretend We're Dead. Um, and I want to just read the, a little bit of like how she reads um, the ending of this film. Um, so she calls it the infamously hokey David spends the day with mommy ending. A Hollywood movie cannot leave audiences without some kind of ideological closure. Um So David hasn't found the sort of family that mainstream culture deems fit to find a safe niche. Instead, David's continuing love for Monica drives him to near suicide, and he spends several millennia at the bottom of the ocean with Teddy, hoping that Pinocchio's blue fairy will make him human. When robots of the far future find him, they resurrect Monica for one happy day of traditional family bliss in a scene that suggests David has ascended to some kind of mecha heaven. This is the robot's reward for enduring abuse, the murder of his friends, and emotional enslavement. One day with mommy. Perhaps if this ending had been more persuasively optimistic, AI might not have been the box office slot that it was. Um, and I I <laughs> I really enjoy her reading of the ending of that, but mm-hmm. it's actually very different than my reading of it, even though mm-hmm. I, I think that actually um I also read it as like that the reward is so incommensurate to what, you know, like what, what was actually desired. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that I actually think that pessimism is built into the film itself. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that when you see what David's dream is of like what the fantasy that he really wants is, is just to like um, be loved by mommy and to be able to like be near mommy and to be Mm -hmm. um, reunited with her that actually you see how um I'm losing my train of thought how mm-hmm. like um how incommensurate that yeah. desire is and and how sort of like short-sighted it is that this mm-hmm. is the limit of what he's 
able to do. Yeah, or I think short-sighted sort of implies that he's, there's something else that he could want or that he's not, like he's he's not sort of casting his imagination broadly enough. I, I feel like, I think you're you're totally right that that like last sequence doesn't feel like a happy ending period right like mm -hmm. we're not watching it being like oh this is awesome like yeah. like <laughs> like, like it, the the whole thing it just like is so so kind of devastating. Um, I I mean like short sighted not in terms of David but of the humans that developed his technology and sort oh, of like see, set I the see. parameters for what he could do. Oh, I see. I see. And okay. I think yeah. like that, that actually that you end up seeing, Oh, the reality that is dreamed of it only exists in fantasy and it only yeah. exists in this far off future that no human will have like lived mm -hmm. to reach like that actually will have surpassed sort of like any human lifetime. You know, I think one of the things that's often so moving about passages of this movie is that there are no humans in it. Mm -hmm. So like that that very last thing, it is both incredibly sentimental. And yet I think for me, there's enough ironic inflection of that sentimentality to make it not like cloying mm -hmm. by just thinking like every single human who's ever lived is dead at this point. And mm -hmm. robots are just rehearsing yet again <laughs> our like stupid little like domestic fantasies yeah. <laughs> because we fucking programmed them to do yeah. it you know? like there's something just so like pathos pathetic in the sense of pathos about that the the robots from the future tell david you're so special to us you're so important to us because you had this like last you know, like you have the memories of what it's like to be with humans and we just want you to be happy, David. Yeah. <laughs> so even the idea that right. sort of like the, right. the parameters so of, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That the things that they're able to act out um, are really just sort of like the reenactments that we've, we've stuck them with. Yeah. Do you want to talk about um like what it means to watch AI in 2023. Um, sure. Kind of, and I, I, maybe I mean that in a couple of ways, like both in the sense of like, what does this tell us about what has changed in the last 22 years of mm -hmm. like our fantasies and like imagining of this kind of thing. But I think I'm also curious in hearing like how, how you make sense of your, love of the movie because you I think we both watched this movie and loved this movie before we became like professionally uh invested in movies yeah yeah and and it's it's a kind of I feel like it's a kind of funny film um to be interested in from like a film studies standpoint today and so I'm just curious how you make sense of that you know, yourself in your own kind of trajectory from then till now. One of the things that I mentioned to you was that I hadn't seen this in several years. Um, and 
it's surprising how well it holds up. Like it, yeah. it the the sort of like um, visions of the future actually still feel very futuristic. Right. Um, right. The sort of like, I think some of the questions about technology and, you know, sort of like the anxieties around intimacy <laughs> come across as naive now. I think mm-hmm. that we're in like a different stage where the idea of like, love robots or like robots that replace humans emotionally is not a priority. Um, but that actually like so many of the designs of the film even are feel like very, they really hold up. I was thinking yeah. about like Monica's very cool car that yeah. she drives and how much cooler that looks than Elon Musk's cyber truck. <laughs> <laughs> a remake of AI where she's just driving a cyber truck. <laughs> Well, no, the Cybertruck drives itself. Oh, that's right. Yes. And then the Cybertruck says to David, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you about the world. <laughs> and the back one. <laughs> yeah, somehow it like, it both feels a little bit like hokey 90s, like, um, like Animorphs vehicle. But also, so I, th- I think it like has, actually has to do with like the, like the sound and like the camera angle the way it's shot where it just feels like really kind of close up and sort mm-hmm. of kind of and sort of looming over the camera even as, it, as it's being shot that it does that it uh that it doesn't look kind of cheesy mm-hmm. where it, I think it could be cheesy if it if it were shot a different way perhaps I think also the brutality of this film, though, is is oh, part yeah. of that. Like one oh, of the things God. we haven't talked about yet is the flesh fairs, which are yeah. these like um, this sort of like uh, we have the sense that it's like this right wing sort of like form of entertainment that really um, develops around the sort of like torture and dismemberment of um, any sort of like rogue androids or rogue mecha. And um, that, you know, that we have the sense that there is this like political sort of like um, antipathy towards like the development of this technology as like a threat to humanity. Um, And I guess like those scenes actually feel so much like the iconography is still with us. Mm -hmm. Like it it doesn't feel aged in in those sequences either. At the same time, what do you make of the fact that the entire, like, all of these, um, like, insurgent contrarian mobs are instantly halted and their sympathies are entirely stirred up at the vision of the pain of a little boy? A little white boy who looks like Haley Joel Austin. Cute little white boy, cute as a button. Um, so that, you know, they're like, they're like destroying Mecca's left and right. And then mm-hmm. David gets hauled into the middle of the circle. And then, uh, Brendan Gleeson's like, ah, he's just on Mecca. Don't be fooled. <laughs> Don't let his baby blue eyes fool you. And everyone's like, no, he looks so real. And then, so, and then, and then they're like common humanity or so we are meant to believe, um, is, I mean, it, it is such a, I wonder if you think of that as like a, like, I, I can't see Kubrick doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
that feels like a kind of like, oh, like good people are ultimately good and good will prevail if you present them a little white boy cute enough. Um, it feels kind of Spielberg-y. Yeah, um, I agree. Are there other parts of the movie that, in terms of the fantasy of this movie about mm. technology and the sort of like anxieties that this movie is expressing that you feel like were outdated or, or ones that you interestingly think are, are still very present? Yeah, well, I think I was saying to you the other day, like it's interesting how much this movie didn't anticipate the ways in which AI would affect labor and the mm -hmm. life of work that the and and this feels kind of like something that happens often with sci-fi kinds of imaginations which is that like um or or maybe or i shouldn't say sci-fi but with like kind of technophobic reactions when when some kind of new development or new invention or whatever provokes in kind of like normal discourse this imagination of a future dystopia that the dystopia is often imagined as ravaging intimate life mm -hmm. rather than say like the life of work mm -hmm. um and so in this case yeah the robots it's like oh my god like they're going to replace our lovers and our children mm -hmm. and we won't be able to tell a real child from a fake child and as you've said that doesn't feel nearly as present a worry now than the idea that AI would like automate labor and kind of like replace human labor, which I think is like mm -hmm. not an not a different species of fear from the fear of like what if there's a, like a robot child and a orgo child are indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. Like what if like a, a like an AI written script and a human written script are indistinct? It feels like a related kind of fear, but it is interesting that like you know one is so public and one is so private and that AI the movie totally doesn't anticipate that the kind of like work element yeah absolutely I mean I think like um the way that you know um AI generated text and AI generated art and even the concerns around how like these technologies like basically what they do is they you know plagiarize from like the mass amounts of um writing and art that mm -hmm. is available online right. and you know like construct it together into um the best sort of like possible response or whatever or at least that's the dream like yeah. right now you know often it falls short of that but um I think yeah that 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 I would say is sort of interesting as an anxiety that this movie doesn't even have on its horizon right yeah, where we are now is um, that when I asked an AI how it felt about Damien Lillard being traded to the Bucks, the AI <laughs> responded to me, Damien Lillard hasn't been traded to the Bucks. You must be mistaken. <laughs> and I felt gaslit. <laughs> because there was a kind of like authority of, yes. you know, I was like, how do I know? I haven't scraped like a hundred thousand websites. <laughs> come up with my information and yet and and yet it was I mean I this is like you know very obvious and obviously stupid but I'm like you know it is so easy to google is Damien Lillard on the bucks <laughs> for this like AI that was built into like my opera browser not to be able to figure that out anyway. well but but your question was how does it feel right 
Oh, good point. Well, I, I don't know if I actually used the word feel. I, I need to oh. go back and look at it. But maybe using an emotion wor word completely fried its circuitry. <laughs> what do you think about the ending of this movie, Dan? I mean, I think that we, um, I felt like you had a little bit more to say that I wonder if I cut you off. No, I, I don't think I had anything else. I, I think even before I was I was trying to figure out like why I'm so fascinated by the ending mm -hmm. um, in part because I, I you know, there, there was something there that I felt I wanted to maybe think about more. Um, do you think that it's also the perfect day for Monica? Or do you think it's only the perfect day for David? I don't know if that's exactly an interesting question. No, I think because it's a great question. It's a simu like she's also yes. a simulation, right? Like yes. David actually has become more real than her at this point because right. the real Monica's long gone. Right. Um I definitely think it's only a perfect day for David because David is the only one who knows the whole story. Yeah. Right. And so they they're kind of occupying different like registers of knowledge mm -hmm. and there are a couple of moments where Monica gets a little bit confused mm -hmm. so you know the robots have given David instructions like you know here are the things that you shouldn't talk about mm -hmm. um, it feels a little bit like maybe a patient with Alzheimer's or something mm -hmm. where it's like you can you can relate to this person but only in certain ways mm -hmm. and David you know has to be in the position both of the the participant in the scene and also he holds back from Monica this other role of kind of orchestrating the scene and knowing more about the scene than she does yeah there is one interesting moment where he's kind of like telling her the story of all the things that he's been up to Mm -hmm. which is essentially like a plot summary of the movie AI, <laughs> but it's rendered as like child paintings. Yeah, so he makes I, like storyboards basically for the movie yes, that we just watched. Exactly. And then he's like, and then here was the end of act one. And then act two, I went to the <laughs> flesh fair <laughs> and I met Jude Law. Um, but there's it's, it is a kind of like retrospective montage of the movie that happens at the mm -hmm. end of the movie. Um through these like paintings and then and then there's this like and then there's a great reaction shot of Monica looking at the paintings and she looks so confused mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then she like forces her mouth to do a little smile that doesn't like reach her eyes which mm -hmm. is I wrote down in my notes that's the David face like mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie so many shots of David are like him doing blank face and then his like lips turn up a little bit in a smile mm -hmm. that doesn't reach his eyes. Mm -hmm. And somehow the kind of like reverse positioning of knowledge that happens at the end, where at the beginning, the humans are the ones who like, like they know this kid is a robot. They know more about the world than this kid. The kid is still mm -hmm. figuring it out, right? Like, so they mm -hmm. shove him into a closet and he's like, is it a game? Like mm -hmm. he, like, this is the child thing you were talking about before of like, not being able to like meta textually interpret what's going on they they only have like the direct access to what's going on not the larger interpretive frame and yeah by the this end, is just the is... thing that's in front of me like this yeah. is just the next thing 
Exactly. And that's exactly what David is told about how to talk to Monica at the end, mm -hmm. right? Like, don't talk about the past. She'll get confused. Don't talk about the future. Just interact in the present. And there's something about that condition that produces what the ordinary is at the end, mm. right? Like somehow the inhabitation of like an ordinary day, a perfect day requires, at least in this ending, one of them to have kind of one foot outside of it and mm -hmm. to sort of be in charge of it mm -hmm. so that this ordinary space can kind of continue undisturbed. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to make of that, but I think that is that is part of what's sad about the ending mm -hmm. and also part of why it's not as simple as David gets one great day with mommy, you know, because he doesn't actually, he has to be the adult yeah. um, in that day. Yeah. I, you know, that it's funny because that role reversal where David becomes the storyteller and mm -hmm. he's like showing mommy the photos yeah. or his, you know, like drawings of basically like what's been happening to him. Yeah. Um, is like that only works because Monica is still like the remnants of humanity left in her still allow her to think about stories abstractly mm. instead of concretely. And mm. the horror is that all of David's drawings like of the flesh bear and, you know, um, the sort of like this grotesque version of the Pinocchio story that he went through Um that he's actually giving her the literal history basically in those drawings, but that her like human ability to like see, to believe that stories are mostly functioning abstractly is what prevents it from being horrific. So that's, that's one element of their role reversal too, at that moment, I think. Yeah. And, and just the kind of like the, the parent to child storyteller relationship too. Um, and and what you just said captures so beautifully the sense of like when children are told fairy tales they don't have any context for like is this real or not like maybe you know the reason why the child asks so often like you know what or like in children's stories the thematization of like a character who like wonders what is real and what is not is not mm -hmm. out of necessarily a sense of inauthenticity or a sense that mm -hmm. I am fake but it's just that like the child who's told stories about like, you know, um, <laughs> like uh, construction sites and bulldozers one day and then like fairies and like giants the next day, mm -hmm. they have no way of parsing, you know, mm -hmm. what is real and what is not. Like they're just kind of taking you at your word. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, a, really, that's a really beautiful thought about how David becomes the storyteller there and Monica becomes the one who can't, fully place yeah you know, what is real and what is not yeah. that feels like a really great place to wrap up did you have any other thoughts about the movie that are lingering after you rewatched it I'm so I'm so glad to just have seen it again yeah me too. Um, because you know it's such a it still is such a powerful movie to me that yeah. it's difficult 
to watch it again as I as I think I was telling you like it's actually one of those things that I sometimes you love something so much that you have to ration off how, how often you expose yourself to it um like there are certain books that I feel that way about as well um and yeah like this movie sort of really it was it was both like nice and it felt also um really good to have a structure around <laughs> approaching it again yeah yeah it's, I, I'm really glad I watched it again too and you know I so I, I so I don't entirely feel this way about this movie in particular but sometimes I think like as you said when you've when when you encountered something when you were younger and it made such an impression on you sometimes I I kind of know that thing is not going to hold up if I like watch it or it just won't be the same but the thing that it did to me was so real mm -hmm. that I would rather have that um like then some kind of objective knowing that the movie itself was like really great again I don't think that's quite the case here because um I got a lot out of rewatching it and I feel like like after talking about it with you just now I feel like um it's like grown <laughs> grown mm -hmm. in my like estimation and, and and what it's helped me think about um but it definitely for a long time I think occupied this like I partly I was avoiding it because I preferred the memory of like what it did to me when I watched it when I was young to yeah. the, like having the movie itself mm -hmm. but I'm glad I watched it again <laughs> me too thank you Dan Thank you, Tian Tian. Uh, can I can I close by asking you how are you feeling about the imminent start of the NBA season? I can't wait to see Damian Lillard play with Giannis. <laughs> I I you know it's a bummer that he didn't get exactly what he wanted because yeah. it, it would have been cool to see him in Miami too. Yeah. Um, but this this feels like such a game changer for the league. It'll be. Yeah. I, do you have the Bucks as number one now and like most likely oh, to go all the way this year? I think so. I think so. Do you think uh, one day uh, at the end of his life, Damian Lillard will have a hallucination of the perfect day where he's just like walking <laughs> on the beach hand in hand with Jimmy Butler in Miami? <laughs> And he's like, I've and, been waiting my well, whole life for this. One, one hand is holding Jimmy's, one hand is holding Bam's. I thought you were going to say, like, a tiny robotic teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the shape of Bam. Oh. He, um, he got he got the number um, O for his jersey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you hear that there was talk about, like, because so, so an, a player on the Bucks, a kind of, like, a bench player on the Bucks, had an O before mm. Dame, Dame got there. And there was some speculation about like how much does it cost to take somebody's number, <laughs> like and and it ranged from like various like amounts of money to like a guest feature on like Dame's next album. <laughs> Maybe that could be a bartering chip that would convince somebody. Or it's just the team telling you, you <laughs> that numbers Dame's now. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I can't believe that did come up in all the speculation. What is, in fact, the most plausible? The most likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm. I'm so psyched about this season too. I feel like I haven't. I haven't been psyched about the NBA season the way I'm now in a couple of years. I think I went yeah. through like a little bit of burnout the last couple yeah. of years, but for some reason this year I'm just like on board. 
Awesome. Well, my condolences again about Toronto, but what happened? That's, oh, we that's didn't, good that you're excited. Yeah. No, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't get game. Okay. Um, yeah, that would have that would have just guaranteed uh, a kind of middling, mm. middling and quickly depreciating team situation for a number of years. Um, and and I frankly don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> if if you're asking me. Um, well, maybe maybe we'll be back on soon once the NBA season starts and there's more to talk about. Or maybe uh, I'll see you again in 18 months. Okay. <laughs> It'll be one or the other. See, yeah, see you either next week or in 18 months, Dan. Sounds good. And then um, and then we'll we'll discuss where the state of artificial intelligence is at that. You know, <laughs> 18 maybe. months from now. We'll just check it out. Or next week. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for watching Film With Me, TT. Thank you for watching Film With Me, Dan. Bye. Bye.